Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord. Thank you very much. I want to remind you, you also have in your bulletin an insert with the scripture and a, bullet and a sermon outline. I would, uh, even more than usual, encourage you to have this at hand because it will help us to uh, untangle some of the more complicated pieces of this text for our understanding today. But before we get into that, I want to start with a question. Who has your deepest affections. To what does your thoughts and your feelings curve toward? We have been in the book of Haggai for the last month and a half, and we're close to the end, actually. But we have been looking at it through this idea of being renewed. We've used this image of a tree stump with a tree that is coming up from a dead stump to remind us that God can bring new beginnings to his people even when, from their perspective, all hope may be lost. As we have been going through the book of, of Haggai, we've seen strong exhortations about obedience. We've seen encouragement. We've seen resetting ourselves on the sovereignty of God. But in some ways, the text that is in front of us is the key text in God's plan of renewal for these people. Because what is happening in this text, in these nine or ten verses, is God trying to establish these people from having a short burst of obedience, a short burst of faithfulness, into becoming a truly heartfelt, committed people of God. The question that lays over this text is, will this be a short-lived burst of obedience, or will this be the true turning point where the people of God live before God Almighty all the days of their life? And so in this text, we come across two different ways in front of the people, two different ways for the people to live there is the way that describes their past, and then there is the way that God wants them to see their future. The first way, the way of their past, has been marked by what I think can adequately be called self-centered religion. 
We remember in the first chapter of Haggai the condition of the people of God. Their priorities were not upon God and his house, but upon themselves and paneling their homes. They said again and again, it is just not time. I have to focus on my affairs before I focus on God's affairs. We also saw their hearts being beset with complacency. Not all that bothered for 16 years that God's house has not had any progress on it. Meanwhile, they have been busying themselves with their own affairs. We see the way of the past is self-centered religion. The deepest affection of these people in that period was themselves. They were marked by deep-set self-interest. But the second way that God wants his people to focus on is the way forward, the way of the future, which is God-centered faith. God-centered faith describes the people who responded to God's word with obedience when Haggai preached in chapter 1. It is the way of the people who have grounded their hopes in God's presence and power and sovereign plan, as we have seen in chapter 2. God-centered faith is where God's people center themselves upon God and his will. God-centered faith is where God is our deepest affection. Now it is important for us as a church to recognize that these two different ways do not describe the ways of the people who are not in church versus the ways of the people who are in church. These two ways describe the visible people of God in Israel. The people who all confess, the Lord is my God have lived these two different ways. And so, the two ways in in this passage are for us, as the visible church, to consider as well. In this passage, God is going to contrast these two ways by showing that there are four differences between self-centered religion and God-centered faith. And he does this because... To make the mistake of self-centered religion risks increasing judgment. Really, life and death are set between these two ways. Those who pursue self-centered religion are pursuing a life of increasing discipline and judgment and separation from God. And so God wants them to recognize that right now is the key moment, the key turn If you continue to pursue me, if you continue to center your life around me, if you are marked by God-centered faith, then your future is much different than your past. So hear carefully. It is possible to be a committed churchgoer, to be deep in, in the work of the church, to be a participant in the life of God's people, and still be in God-centered religion. And it is because of that danger that the words given to us are so important. How do we know if we are in the way of self-centered religion or in the way of God-centered faith? Well, as we go to this text, we will see these four distinguishing marks between self-centered religion and God-centered faith. And as we go through them, I want each of us to consider the affections of our heart. Does our heart bear the marks of self-centered religion or God-centered faith? The difference cannot be overstated. Let us turn to the text now and look at these four contrasts. First, we see that self-centered religion seeks God for benefits. Whereas God-centered faith seeks God for relationship. Self-centered religion seeks God for benefits. But God-centered faith seeks him for relationship. 
And here we are looking at this passage, verses 10 through 14, where Haggai comes to the priests and asks a couple questions about the ceremonial law. He asks about carrying holy meat in our garment, and if that garment touches something, does that thing that is touched by the garment become holy? And then he asks, but if you have uh, unclean, unholy, polluted uh, contact and you touch something else, does that unholiness, that uncleanness pass through? And this is a discussion that I have never heard amongst fellow Christians. They are not concerned about holy meat and what it touches and unholy meat and what it touches. But what lies underneath this is a very important principle and concept about God's holiness and our sanctification. And as irrelevant as it might seem at the surface, I think as we pull back the the issue here, we are going to see its deep relevance to our life. So first we have to go through some background, and this may take a few minutes, but please bear with me, it will be magnificently rewarding. Trust me. <laughs> I got, you know, I'm working on the Old Testament and PhD work, so, you know, I got to get something out of it here. So, anyways, holiness and uncleanness, these are terms that, that we don't use very often. Holiness, I think, we still grasp. That's, that's the nature of God. That's, that's what God is in his, in his essence, is he is holy, he is pure, he is set apart by extreme goodness and righteousness. But aside, on the other side of the spectrum is what the scriptures call uncleanness. Or pollution. And the idea is that if you're unclean, you cannot come into the presence of the purity of God. And you can become unclean for various reasons. Sin makes you unclean, but also contacting things that have been assigned as unclean also make you unclean. So dead bodies, corpses, if you uh, had to touch a dead body, that uncleanness became part of who you were, and you had to clean yourself through the sacrificial system. The whole first 300 pages of the Bible deal a lot with this issue of how to make yourself clean. In fact, the book of Leviticus, the death place for all year-long reading plans, goes in great depth of, of what it means to go from unclean to clean. But the basics of it is this. You had to sacrifice an animal And that would purify you from sin, or that would purify you from the pollution or contamination of uncleanness from another way. But what Haggai wants us to recognize as we look at this text is that holiness can only be transferred by direct contact. The only way that a person can experience holiness is by touching direct contact to something else that is holy. It's got a one degree of separation. One, you have to touch it to be holy. Uncleanness, impurity, that can touch things to the second degree. So it means that if I touched a dead body in ancient Israel, and then I put my clothes on the ground, and my wife picks up my clothes to put them in the laundry, because I don't know where the laundry is. She tells me all the time, why am I picking up your clothes? But if that were to happen, if I were to take off my clothes that touched a dead body, put them on the ground, she picks them up, that uncleanness that impurity has now transferred to her. She now cannot come into the presence of God without a sacrifice. Okay, so you see how uncleanness can spread, how the pollution of sin and impurity spreads faster, at least to the second degree faster, than holiness. Well, that's a big problem because Haggai then turns the issue and looks at the people of God who have come back from the restoration period, and he makes this declaration. Verse uh, 14, Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. What Haggai is telling the people is, you are unclean. You are in a status of impurity. You cannot come before a holy God with your uncleanness. And because the holy holy God does not have a house, there is no way for you ever to remove your uncleanness. Everything you do, all the works of your hands, everything is marked with uncleanness, and it is spreading, and it is noxious 
to a holy God. So Haggai brings up basically two issues regarding the people's uncleanness. The first is that these people in their uncleanness have misused the sacrificial system. And the second is the condition of their uncleanness and how they are ever going to be able to get out of that condition. We're going to deal with that first issue, the misuse of the sacrificial system, and we'll wait to deal with the condition of their uncleanness later. But to get into that, I have to now tell you about the sacrificial system. So we have more background. I I hope that you are are still with me because I promise there's a big boom coming, okay? Israel's sacrificial system. Why did all of these sacrifices exist? You can read the book of Leviticus and absolutely be uh, dumbfounded with all of the regulations about the animals and the way that you handle the blood and where it needs to be taken and where the priest's hands need to put, all these things. Very specific. It's, it's, It's dry, okay? It's dry reading. I understand. But what's it all about? What's the sacrificial system for? The sacrificial system was to maintain the relationship of a holy God with a constantly impure and unclean and unholy people. God gave the sacrificial system so that God could dwell in their midst, so that there was an answer to their condition of uncleanness through sacrifice. You see, what happens when uncleanness and impurity and sin comes into our lives, that necessarily separates us from the holiness of God. God's holiness, as the apostle John tells us, is light. God is light. He is pure. He is holy. Sin and uncleanness is like darkness. Can darkness and light be put in the same place? They cannot. So if we have darkness, uncleanness, impurity, and sin in us, we cannot come to God. We have a separation that is substantial. But that is why God gave the sacrificial system, so that the separation that is caused by sin could be taken away. Now, here, perhaps, it will all become clear through visualizing what happens with the sacrificial system. The sacrifice is brought to the house of God, brought to the temple, to an altar. So a person who knows that they have sinned comes to the house of God, in front of which is an altar. And they bring a sacrifice that has been uh, described that they are supposed to bring, and they give that sacrifice to the priest. And the priest will lay his hands on that animal. And the sins of the person are then given to that animal, and that animal is sacrificed. And so with the sacrifice, the death of that animal, this person who was far is now brought near to the house of God. So the relationship that had distance... Because of the sacrifice, they are now together. The the person that gave the sacrifice is now in the presence of God at the house of God. Do you see that? The, the, the sacrifice was about bringing a person who was far from with sin back into close communion and relationship with God. Okay? Now here's a little, what do you, what do you call it, lag, lag nap? Lanyap, a little something extra, a little something extra. Here's what happened with the sacrificial system. If you read the book of Leviticus and you get confused, here's what's going on. Typically, a person brought three sacrifices. The first sacrifice was a sin offering. The second sacrifice was a burnt offering. And the third sacrifice was a peace offering. The sin offering covered the sin It was where the person came and confessed their sins, and because the animal died, they received the assurance of forgiveness. The second offering that comes after the sin offering was the burnt offering. That was given entirely to God. That was like a thanksgiving offering. Why do we give the the thanksgiving offering? Why do we give it all to God? Because we are responding in thankfulness to the grace of God's forgiveness. Then the third sacrifice is the peace offering. And the neat thing about the peace offering is half of that offering goes to God and the other half goes back to the person who made the offering. It becomes a meal between God 
and the person symbolizing the communion, the peace that they have. Now that sounds really old, really foreign, but if you were to pick up your bulletin, you will see that the same thing happens every week that we come together. We start with our prayer of confession, which is our offering of our sins, and then we hear the assurance of pardon. And then in the offering, that's our whole burnt offering. That's where we say, thank you, God, for all that you have given us. Praise you. Let me show you by giving you something choice and cherished of mine. And then we end every service with a peace offering, essentially, a communion table where we experience God's presence and God's fellowship with us. You see, the Old Testament is a foreshadow, is a shadow of what Christ has done for his church. All of that has been accomplished in Christ. But really, our worship has very, very deep roots. All right, Lanyap over. What were the people doing in the day of Haggai? As I said, what we're looking at here is self-centered religion seeks God for benefits, whereas God-centered faith seeks God for relationship. What we have happening in the day of Haggai is this. They had built the altar, which is where the animal was sacrificed, but they hadn't built the house of God. What were they saying then when they came and brought their animals for sacrifice? What were they saying? Where was their concern in the sacrificial system? They wanted the sacrifice to forgive their sins. They wanted the benefit of cleanness. They wanted the benefit of forgiveness. But the house of God was in rubble. There was no sacrifice. There was no gift. There was nothing in their uh, mind that was about a relationship. They just wanted the outcome of a sacrifice. I've given a sacrifice, therefore I am forgiven. But the house of God being in rebels means that they were not pursuing the relationship at all. They were pursuing the benefits that God gives them, which is forgiveness, and all the while being uninterested in the fact that God can't even be there in that house. So what are these people doing? They are seeking their own interest of having forgiveness, of feeling good about themselves, but completely uninterested in a relationship with the God who forgives them. This is self-centered religion seeking God for benefits, not relationship. In contrast, God-centered faith is to seek God for relationship. Those are vastly different. Do we see the same thing in our church? Do we see the same thing in, in the church? Do we see people interested in the church for the warm religious feelings of being good and doing the right thing with no evidence, no interest in a real relationship with Jesus Christ? Do we come to receive benefits from God but don't really have our heart engaged with God. Jonathan Edwards famously described the difference between a nominal Christian and a true Christian this way. He said that the nominal Christian finds Christ useful. And a true Christian finds Christ beautiful. Useful versus beautiful. What's the difference? Useful is seeking Christ for the benefits, for the family, for the forgiveness, for the sense of belonging, for making my life feel a little less disordered. But coming to Christ because he's beautiful is singing about the blood of Christ and saying, that was for me. How precious 
is the Savior who died for me. To see Christ as beautiful is to say, I want nothing, just Christ. I love Christ. And it's great that I am forgiven. It's great that I'm saved from hell. But what I want most of all is that I am with Christ. Thank you, God, for making a way that I can have a relationship with you. Because I want your forgiveness so that I can be with you. That is the difference between seeing Christ as useful and seeing Christ as beautiful. This is illustrated powerfully in the New Testament. On the night that Jesus is about to be arrested, a woman, probably, I believe it's Mary, is so full of love for Jesus, who has made her life meaningful and whom she loves from her heart, that she tries to express her love and devotion for him, and she's looking for a way to do it. She's a poor family. They have hardly anything, but they had one thing that was precious, one thing that was truly valuable, one thing that was an heirloom that you passed on and said, this this is our nice thing. It was this jar of perfume, expensive. Maybe it cost a year's salary. I don't know how they got it. This beautiful bottle of perfume that can only be used for the most special occasion because you know how you use it. You have to break the jar and you can use it once. Because once you break the jar, all the beautiful aromas are let out. They cannot be rebottled. And Mary, in the presence of Jesus, is so moved by her deep affections for him that she says, this is the moment that that jar of nard has been meant for. And she grabs it and she breaks it to cover his feet with this beautiful aroma because her affections were so overwhelmingly drawn to love Christ because of how he had loved her. And so this whole room is filled with this extravagant worship, this extravagant love and devotion. And it offended somebody. It offended Judas, who said, why all this waste? Why would you destroy something that we could have sold for hundreds of dollars? We could have fed so many poor people with this. Why did you waste this? Scolding Mary for her devotion. One of those is self-centered religion. The one who hates true affection, true devotion, extravagance in our love for Christ, the one who says, keep it down. Don't be a fanatic. Don't go overboard with Jesus. Keep it under control. But God-centered faith is so full of affection for Christ that it is marked by extravagance, by wholeheartedness, By full devotion of everything that I have is yours because everything of you, you gave to me to save me. Does Christ have your affections? Does Christ have your affections? So first, self-centered religion seeks God for benefits, whereas God-centered faith seeks God for relationships. Second, God-centered religion sees God as part of life. Whereas God-centered faith sees God as over life. Now as we again look at the text of Haggai, we come into verse 15 through 19, and it's a bit confusing to to make sense of, of what is being said there. And so as you look at your handout, I put in indents different parts of this passage to help you separate what is going on. The indented section represents the way of the past, represents the way of self-centered religion. God is speaking to his people, and he is mixing what is coming forward and also reminding them of what has come in the past. So as you look at verses 15 through 17, he is going back to describing the time before they place stone upon stone in the temple of the Lord. So he is looking backward at the way that they used to be. 
The key word there is the word before in verse 15b. Before rebuilding the, peop- the, the, the temple, before responding to Haggai to rebuild the temple, the people had separated their religious life with their daily existence. They had become people who saw God as part of life, not as all of life. How do we know that? You go back to chapter 1 and you read them saying, it is just not time. It's not time to build this temple because life is so hard. My crops aren't producing. My work isn't, isn't uh, coming together like it should. I am just feeling squeezed everywhere. I have nothing to give to God. And what God reminds them in the first chapter and what he's reminding us again in these verses is the reason you're feeling squeezed, the reason everything is coming up short is because you're under discipline. Because I am making your self-centered life hard so that you will come back and focus God-centered faith upon me. But you see, the person that is in self-centered religion only sees God in parts of their life. The the self-centered religion does not see God in the crops, does not see God in their labor. That's my stuff. Stay out of it, God. I'll take care of that part, and I'll come to you with my sacrifices. I'll come to you with the things that you say you want. But this life over here is mine. This life over here is yours. So what we have with the people of uh, with, with with the people of God in the way of the past is self-centered religion where they see God as part of life. You see self-centered religion limits God's realm. They they want to say that God doesn't take, isn't involved or doesn't care about all the various different things that they are doing between their Sabbath days. But what are we told here? We're told, I struck you in all the products of your toil. God is showing them, to the contrary, that he is over all of life. God cares for everything in your life. And he wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. In true God-centered faith, there is no secular and religious. There is one life lived under God. All of life is for God. Is this relevant to us today? A researcher, a sociologist, published a book a few years ago where after doing survey after survey after survey with Uh, the youth of our nation, our churched youth of our nation, identified the true religious belief of many people in our church to be described as this, moral, therapeutic deism. Moral, therapeutic deism. By moral, the only thing God really cares about is I'm a good person. By therapeutic, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy at all costs. And deism. God is not that involved in my day-to-day life. God is only involved when I want him. God comes when I pray for him. But other than that, he and I have respective spaces. And the two do not mix. Moral, therapeutic deism. Is that affecting more than our youth? Where did our youth learn moral, therapeutic deism? Let me ask you, do you want God in all of your life, or do you only want God when and where you need him? It makes me think of the story of the rich young ruler who was an early candidate for being a moral therapeutic deist. He comes to the Lord Jesus and he says, what must I do to receive eternal life? Important question. Something every one of us needs to know the answer to. What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you need to obey the commands of God. Oh, moral. All right, I got that. 
lists off all the commandments. I've done all that from my birth, from my childhood. And then Jesus looks at him and says, One thing you lack. Sell all that you have and follow me. And the rich young ruler, the last thing we know of him is that his head fell. He was deeply grieved. And he walked away from Jesus because he had many possessions. You see, the rich young ruler wanted a way into heaven. But don't mess with my money. Don't mess with my riches. Don't mess with my life. I want moralism. I want to feel good. I want to feel like I'm going to heaven. But stay out of my stuff. Be deistic. That is self-centered religion. But God-centered faith recognizes that all of life is from God, and all of life is under God, and all of life is for God. In contrast to the rich young ruler, the disciples, when Jesus came to them at the Sea of Galilee... They were fishing with their father. And Jesus spoke to them in the boat and he said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the text is emphatic. It says immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. You see, their livelihood was fishing. Their family life with their father, all of that dropped because the, the, the command of Jesus now is the center of their life. God-centered faith drops their nets and says, all of my life, all that happens to me, all that I do is yours. Have you met a Jesus where you dropped your nets for him? Have you dropped your nets for Jesus? And said, I'm following you. That is God-centered faith. Does Christ have your affections? Third, this passage is packed, isn't it? Four points this week. Self-centered religion responds to discipline with hardening. Whereas God-centered faith responds with repentance. So after God has explained, I struck you with these things because you were in disobedience, we read, I think, the most heartbreaking words that God speaks in the book of Haggai. Yet you did not return to me. I disciplined you. I tried to get your attention. I tried to call you back to a living faith, to a God-centered faith. Yet, you did not return to me. We see that that God is reminding his people of his discipline. His discipline comes out of love. He He attacked the productivity of their fields so that that squeeze should make them say, I need to get my life God-centered again. I need to recognize that what's wrong with my life is not that my crops are not producing, but that God is not in it. And if I put God in my life, then I have all that I need. And so God is using discipline, discipline that they should have discerned because he describes it for them in detail in the book of Deuteronomy. He disciplines his people because of his love for his people. It is a loving father that that, that resists his child from having something that will destroy him. If your child wants to play with a venomous snake and you stop him, you are being loving. You are being kind and sweet and caring for that person. But the child may want to hold that snake, may may think that that snake is a lot of fun, and may absolutely hate you for stopping him from playing with that snake. 
But that doesn't make what the Father is doing anything less than love. The self-centered person doesn't respond to discipline with repentance because the self-centered person believes they are always right. They are the most difficult people to have a conversation with. When they are challenged, they double down. When the self-centered person faces hardship that comes upon them, they blame. They point to the problem out there. When the self-centered person is held accountable for something that they are in error, they respond with excuses. Or they harbor resentment that it was brought out. Self-centered religion does not come to repentance. It comes to hardness when God calls them to correction. In contrast, God-centered faith, when hardship comes, it brings about greater prayerfulness, more soul-searching. What does this mean, God? What are you trying to tell me, God? Is there sin in my life, God? Hardship brings us to pursuing God harder, not walling God off. When we feel the hand of God's accountability, the hand of God's discipline upon us, the God-centered faith person responds with repentance. In fact, I, I think it's beautiful. When Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall of the, of the church at Wittenberg that started the Reformation, the very first thesis, thesis that he posted was that the Christian's life is to be marked by repentance. The Christian's life is a life of repentance. Why is that? Because when you have repented, when you have said, I follow God, you are not right all the time. You are being conformed to the image of God's Son, who is the righteous one. To live your life self-centered and righteous is incompatible with conforming yourself to the image of Christ who again and again says, you need to repent. You need to follow more faithfully. You need to be more honest. You need to chasten your thought life. And on. But when we hear the word repentance, what does it sound like in our, in our mind? Repentance. Ew, that's going to take away the party. You know, that's going to take away the joy, the fun. If, if repentance were good... It would have what I'm going after in front of it, but it doesn't. It, you're telling me to turn away from this relationship, turn away from this experience. I think the parable of the prodigal son makes the picture of repentance beautiful and tells us what it really is. When the wayward son says, you know what, this, this isn't going anywhere, and he turns to head home, the father comes, wraps his arm around him, receives him and welcomes him into a banquet because my son which was lost is now found. Do you see, repentance is the way into the banquet. It's a way into the party. Failure to repent is to keep yourself outside of it. Repentance is an invitation into the party, into the welcome arms of the Father the most joyous place one can be. In the Psalms, chapter 18, verse 25, we read these words, which I think are quite discerning. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring, do, you bring down. Do you see how the, the people who like want mercy see God as merciful? But those who want crookedness, they see God as tortuous. How God seems to us reveals the disposition of our heart. We hate God when he stands in the way of our affections. 
But when God is the object of our affections, we want to repent of everything that draws us away from him. And we thank God for his discipline. So again, does Christ have your affections? Number four, we've seen that self-centered religion seeks God for benefits, whereas God-centered faith seeks God for relationship. Self-centered religion sees God as part of life, whereas God-centered faith sees God as over life. We've seen self-centered religion responds to discipline with hardening, whereas God-centered faith responds with repentance. And number four, self-centered religion is under judgment, whereas God-centered faith is under grace. We need to go back to that discussion about holiness and uncleanness to remind ourselves of the hopeless condition of these people if they continued in the way of their past. Because their condition was unclean. And there was nothing that they could do to remove that uncleanness. Self-centered religion tries to make themselves clean without a real connection to God. They bring sacrifices. They bring works. They bring good behavior. They bring excuses. But their uncleanness pollutes everything that they do. Every good thing that they think they have continues to be stained and contaminated by their unclean condition. As Isaiah said in chapter 64, verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isaiah is saying we are all unclean. Even our best things that we bring to God in a condition of uncleanness is filthy. Like used toilet paper. Literally. That is what, righteous, what, what the self-centered religion can bring to God. And so if self-centered religion does not repent, the only path ahead of them is judgment. You are choosing the path of separation. You are choosing the path of death. And where that leads is eternal separation. There is no place else for the self-centered religious person to end. So what hope is there? What hope do we have if we recognize our uncleanness and we can't fix our uncleanness by anything that we do? The only hope that we have is in these words, the last words of this passage, I will bless you. God speaks from his own authority and out of his own free will, I will bless you. Only God can remove our cleanness, uncleanness. Only God can renew us. If we are not touched by God's holiness, we can never be made clean. But what an amazing, gracious God that we have. When we go to the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, verse 40, we read these words, which are true for all of us as we recognize our uncleanness. A leper, an unclean of unclean person, came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. The unclean leper, the man who could not be anywhere close to the presence of God, God in the flesh, put his hand on him and gave him cleanness. I will be clean. Jesus touches us. He removes our pollution. He becomes the one that takes the condemnation of our sins on the cross and washes us clean by his holy blood. In him we are clean. God-centered faith then puts its faith in the promise of God for life and nothing else. 
We are cleansed by grace alone. And the most urgent question today is, have you received Christ's touch? Have you asked him, make me clean? We see that self-centered religion seeks God's benefits, limits God to part of life, becomes hardened under discipline, and faces the threat of judgment. Let us reject that way and pursue God-centered faith that seeks God for a relationship, that lives all of life under God, that responds to discipline with repentance and lives by God's grace alone. How do we know that we have grace-centered faith and not self-centered religion? Does Christ have your affections? Receiving God's grace will reorder our affections from ourselves to God. Do your thoughts and desires bend toward knowing Him and living for Him? This is the way of God-centered faith. If that is not true of you, repent. Turn now from the way that leads to destruction. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is hope for all of us right here in this text. These scriptures show us that self-centered religion can be left in the past this day. We can all take hold of these words. From this day on, I will bless you. How? Reach out to him with nothing but these words. If you will, Lord, Make me clean. He is faithful. He will remove your sins from you and fill you with life everlasting. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.